You're listening to The Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. This episode marks the end of the series of studies that I called The Kingdom of Heaven and The Kingdom of Hollywood. It ends where I think it should, in the great city that Jesus built that is the heart of heaven. Last month we began studying what the Bible had to say about the real heaven. And it has a lot to tell us. Some of it's quite surprising. But I want to emphasize again that when we study heaven in its biblical fullness, we are really studying about Jesus. Because every square inch of that amazing kingdom, the gigantic city called the New Jerusalem and paradise that surrounds it, the untold billions of people who are there right now are utterly filled with the eternal, loving, and utterly joyful presence of Jesus the Messiah, our King. Heaven is nothing more and nothing less than the physical expression of Jesus' perfect love for us and the absolute joy that was set before him when he endured the cross, despising its shame, as it says in Hebrews. You know, the work of an artist is an expression of that artist's soul. My wife's painting, she's a painter, as many of you know, are a beautiful expression of her soul. That is what heaven is. It is the perfect expression of Jesus' artistic soul. To experience heaven is to experience Jesus. Several weeks ago, Carol and I were talking during our devotional time together. She had begun reading a book entitled, They Found the Secret, by a man named V. Raymond Edmond. It's a story of 20 different people whose lives were transformed by a touch of eternity And they went on to do things after that that they had never imagined doing. As I have said, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton College is there, the school where Billy Graham attended and many other Christian leaders as well. While I was a child, that town was sort of the home for many international Christian organizations. It was then what I suppose Colorado Springs Springs is today as the holy city kind of approach. But while I was growing up in Wheaton, the president of Wheaton College was V. Raymond Edmond. I heard him speak a number of times. Dr. Edmund was a very unusual man. In September of 1967, he died of a heart attack while speaking to the student body in the morning chapel service at the college. His topic that day was in the presence of the king. And what a way to go into the presence of the king right there that morning. I didn't know Dr. Edmund personally, but all those who did have agreed that what was so unusual about him was his joy. In every circumstance, he was unfailingly cheerful and filled with joy. And during his, his life, he went through much pain and much difficulty. He had found the secret. And that's what his book is about. Something unusual had happened to V. Raymond Edmond. In 1925, when he was a 25-year-old man, uh, he and his wife were missionaries to Ecuador. During that year, he contracted a deadly tropical disease and became unconscious. Finally, he was so ill and everyone knew that this was the end for him. He was going to die. His young wife made funeral arrangements. But while his body lay dying, V. Raymond Edmund was experiencing the wonderful, overwhelming presence of God himself. He was lifted out of his deathbed into the glorious presence of Jesus. In that ecstasy, there was nothing he wanted more than to continue ascending into heaven forever. Then he heard a quiet voice telling him to return, and he began a slow descent 
He regained consciousness and recovered from the disease. He didn't know it, but during that time, he was so ill, uh, back in the United States, many people were praying for him. That experience of God's presence transformed V. Raymond Edmonds' whole life. Through all the pain and trials and difficulties that followed over many years, there was a peace and a joy in him because Jesus himself was constantly there. Edmund had come to realize on the deepest level that it wasn't just knowing about Jesus and what he has done for us or even experiencing his work in our lives. All that mattered was truly knowing him and experiencing his presence as we live out God's will in this dark and very troubled and painful world. Now, all of us are not given the personal vision of God that B. Raymond Edmund was given. But that doesn't mean that we can't experience the presence of Jesus in our lives right now. So very often that comes during times of suffering, and I know that some of us are suffering. How we respond during times of great difficulty has everything to do with experiencing Jesus' presence. We aren't going to experience his presence if our response is anger and fear. I've been, unfortunately, I've been that way myself many times. I've responded with anger and fear. But to experience his presence, we must live each day absolutely surrendered to his will. And his presence will give us peace. This past week, someone sent me a quote. Great faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. Great triumphs can only come out of great trials. We might add to that that the greatest trials bring his closest presence. I want to say this as clearly as possible. Heaven is only for people who truly and deeply love Jesus. When he said to his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them, it was so that they could be with him forever. Can you think of a person you just can't stand? Be honest, you know, all of us have someone like that who's been in our lives or is in our life right now. Imagine spending eternity with that person. In a single room, perhaps, no escaping from them for a single minute. They will be staring at you when you go to sleep, and when you wake up, they'll be always there. They will be with you when you eat. They'll be with you when you read a book, always there with you forever. What a nightmare that would be. Think of a marriage where one spouse despises the other. Yet for one reason or another, they stay together for years. I've known marriages like that, how utterly awful and heartbreaking they are. When you're around such people, it is a nightmare itself. Heaven is not for people who want nothing to do with Jesus. It is not for people who do not love him, because he is everywhere there. If you have no love for Jesus, if you dislike or hate him, being with him forever would be absolutely horrible. So as we study heaven, Jesus' home, one question arises above all others. Do we really love him? And that's a question that is of great concern to Jesus himself. You remember that famous passage in John chapter 21, Peter had denied Jesus before his crucifixion. Now Jesus has risen from the dead and he meets his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and has breakfast with them. Turn to John 21 verse 15. John 21 verse 15. It says this, So when they had eaten breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. As you may know, the word Jesus used for love is the Greek word agapeo. It means a deep, self-sacrificing love. But the word Peter responds with for love is the word phileo. It means affection or friendship. Yes, I'm really fond of you, Jesus. You're, I'm your buddy. Yes, that's who I am. That's really the way he responded. And twice he responded that way. But the third time Jesus asked him, he was grieved and responded with agapeo. Yes, Jesus, I deeply love you with a self-sacrificing love. Jesus goes on to tell Peter that eventually his life will indeed be sacrificed for that love. So as we study heaven, let's be clear. Heaven is not a place for people who just kind of like Jesus or who are a little fond of him. It's for people who love him deeply and passionately. It's for people who know him because to know him and to really know him is to love him just that way. You know, there are foolish Christians who think that somehow it's wrong to study and think about heaven and to long to be there. To long to be in heaven is to long to be with Jesus. Carol and I have been married, well, we will have been married 47 years this coming September. Now, during all those years, it's been very rare for us to be apart for more than a few days at a time. Several times I was gone for two weeks on business, but that wasn't very often. We love to be together. We share an office space in our home where she drives me crazy about computer questions. <laughs> we, we don't like to be separated. But a long time ago, for one entire year, we were apart. And I longed to be with her then. I couldn't wait to get letters from her to know about her life and what she was doing. That longing, that thinking about her did not stand in the way of my accomplishing the work that was in front of me to do. If anything, it spurred me to do it well. The whole year that I was in Vietnam, I was preparing to go home from the first day I arrived. When I arrived home, I wanted Carol and my family to be proud of the work that I had done while I was away from them in that terrible place. And this should be our attitude as we think about heaven and going to be with Jesus. The illustration that we see in the New Testament is of a bride preparing for her wedding day. My goodness, how women prepare for that. It's insane. Every available resource is brought to bear. No effort is spared. I had a daughter, I know. This is how we are to live in this world, loving Jesus deeply and passionately and preparing for the day when we will be with him. I'm afraid that there are a lot of Christians who are preparing for their retirements far more than they are preparing for eternity. They're far more concerned about success in this world than being successful in the next. How are you dressed for eternity? What do your clothes look like? Remember the parable that Jesus told of the wedding feast and the man who arrived who wasn't properly dressed? I love something C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how a dress will look by daylight. That is a, it's very like the problem for all of us, to dress our souls not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for that light will last longer. 
As we think about heaven, there is a particular study that's been very helpful to me, and I want to point you toward it. It's a book entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's one of the most thorough and thought-provoking studies that I've found. You should take it if you get a chance. Buy it and read it. Last month, we began our discussion about heaven and paradise as they are right now. And the new heavens and the new earth that God will recreate someday that is spoken of at the end of the book of Revelation. Someday the kingdom of heaven will cover this earth and the entire universe. In the new world that's coming, God has prepared amazing things for us to enjoy. But I confess in the past when I've thought about it, it's been pretty vague. It's so much easier to focus on this world today. And we should do that. But if we focus on this world without any view of the kingdom that's coming and our place within it, I believe our work here will be greatly damaged. And the Bible speaks about a new world that God will recreate for us to enjoy. In large part, he is talking about, it's talking about redeemed human civilization. Redeemed human civilization. According to the book of Revelation, in that redeemed human civilization, God will live with us. Heaven and earth will be one. In our world, the highest expression of human civilization is in culture, which means excellence in the arts and letters and scholarly pursuits. God placed within us the desire to create human civilization and culture. He created the need in us to do things together. Everything from growing and preparing good food to inventing mechanical devices, making scientific discoveries, painting lovely pictures, writing novels, all of it. The best of what we humans do is meant to be accomplished and shared with others. We don't like being alone for very long. At the very beginning, God said that it wasn't good for Adam to live alone, so he created a partner for him, someone to share with him in the joy of discovery. I believe that before the fall, work in the Garden of Eden was nothing but endless, joyful, maybe hilarious discovery. There's no drudgery about that work. No frustration, no blood, sweat, and tears. All of that came as due to the, the fall and the sin that was involved in it. You know, we as creative people understand the joy that work can be. Once in a while, it's there that way, isn't it? When we're creating something that has captured our imaginations and the process is going well, we're working, but there's such pleasure in it. It isn't drudgery. Now, sadly, too often and too soon, we find ourselves battling with our own limitations or perhaps battling with studio executives. I know what that's like, too. For me, about the 25th rewrite of a chapter, all joy has passed away from the creative process. It is donkey work at that time. I'm battling my own limitations. You know, perhaps my favorite quote outside of the Bible is the famous quote by Robert Browning, and I've quoted it before. Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? My reach has very often exceeded my grasp, but someday it won't. When we as Christians speak about redemption, most often we're talking about personal redemption. Salvation from sin and eternal life because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. But that's only the beginning. His redemption is for all of creation. That includes the physical universe, but also it includes human civilization and culture. The Bible has many passages that speak about the totally redeemed world that's coming. Please turn to Isaiah 60, Isaiah chapter 60. 
this chapter gives us a view of that heavenly world and the city, the new Jerusalem, and God's people who are living in that kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with the ascend acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastland shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. Their, sold, their silver and their gold will with them to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not shut by night or day, that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of, the, of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor the, uh, the brightness shall the, of the moon shall give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God, the God of glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also, your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, you can go straight from this passage to Revelation chapter 21, where the Apostle John extends this description of the New Jerusalem. Now, hidden in Isaiah 60 are some facts about the new world that is coming. 
The first one is that there are great similarities between the new one and the one we're living in right now. In that new world, there are nations. Over and over, the Bible speaks about Jesus ruling the nations. If there are nations, that means that there's civilization. There is organized activity. There is culture. Overseeing all of it are kings and magistrates and officers. In an organized manner, the nations of the earth bring gifts to the new Jerusalem. Where do these Gentile nations come from? Who lives in them? It isn't just anybody. In the new world after the millennial reign of Jesus, the only people on earth will be God's redeemed people from every tribe and nation of the past. In that day, we will be gathered and live in nations. And all of those nations will have their own unique redeemed cultures because that's what people do. It's clear in creation that God loves staggering diversity. He didn't make us all the same. So we will live in redeemed nations that will cover the earth. Remember that according to Revelation at that time, there will be no oceans, plenty of room for a lot of people. Imagine redeemed nations from all periods of history. People bringing their redeemed cultures from all of time to blend in the new kingdom of heaven. The wealth of these nations will be brought to the new Jerusalem to offer to the king. Now clearly the wealth of nations is not only in silver and gold. The wealth of a nation is the fruit of its entire culture, isn't it? And that includes many things that we grow and build and create. Certainly it includes artistic expressions. Yes, I think it could even include entertainment. The best of all of it will be taken to the New Jerusalem. God loves the beauty that is created by the hands of men and women who are dedicated to him. If you don't think so, read the instructions that he gave to Moses in Exodus about how the tabernacle and its furnishings were to be created and who was going to do it. It isn't just a description in words, by the way. God tells Moses that he is to follow the pattern for these things that he saw on Mount Sinai. So Moses saw the beauty that was going to be recreated by his people on earth. Now remember, creativity in the kingdom of heaven is not just the shabby shadows of creativity that we cobble together today. It's the fruit of unchained creating. Creating that is constantly filled with the presence and power of God himself. The best of what we do today, the finest works of the greatest artists in music and painting and writing and perhaps even filmmaking, all of it is like the scribbling of children on a wall compared to what would be possible when that day comes. Could there be a film industry in that new world? Absolutely there could. With people inventing new and utterly amazing technologies beyond anything imaginable today, filmmakers working across the entire universe. I like to see this picture in my mind. Not our pitiful, shabby Star Trek idea of the universe either. Worlds overflowing with amazing creatures all living to the glory of God, waiting to be discovered and have their stories told. Do you think that's just a fantasy? Why do you think so? If God has given people the ability to create and utilize technology in our world, why shouldn't that creativity continue on except in unbelievably advanced redeemed forms in a redeemed universe? So the wealth of the nations, the gold, the silver, the very best from every area of redeemed human culture 
is brought to the New Jerusalem. According to Revelation, that city is a cube. As we said last time, it's 1,400 miles in every direction. It is gigantic. It would reach into what is now outer space. When it comes to earth, its wonderful gates will always be open. The music and light of heaven will stream out, and vast numbers of people and gifts will stream in. What do you find filling the streets of that city? Everything that glorifies God. With all of those gifts streaming in, I think it will be the greatest never-ending festival in the universe. In every street, every hall, brilliant performances by untold thousands of singers and actors and dancers and painters and filmmakers and storytellers, artisans lining the avenues, displaying what they've made for the king, and food and drink from a thousand different cultures. Imagine unchained, real Chicago pizza in the New Jerusalem. That's what I'm waiting for. And why not? Why shouldn't it be? The very best. Better than what Chicago... It's hard to make it better. No. That's already pretty close to heaven. (laughs) Do you remember the story I told you months ago about a woman who came up to me after I had spoken about heaven at a congregation? She was a Jewish believer, and for decades her mother, an atheist, had mocked her faith. But as her mother lay dying... She had an amazing experience. Suddenly she left her body and found herself outside the most beautiful city that she had ever seen. And there was a gate leading into it, but it was closed to her. She said that from inside that gate came the sounds of the greatest party imaginable. Such joy, such music, such laughter. And suddenly she was taken from there and she was shown a terrible dark door. From inside came the awful sounds of weeping and wailing. Before she died a short time later, that woman asked Jesus to forgive her sins and be her Messiah. She's at the party now. The greatest never-ending party, the greatest festival of light and music and joy in the universe. That's what the New Jerusalem is right now, and that's what it's going to be even more when it comes to earth. I firmly believe that I'm going to be there telling stories, maybe showing films that I never could get made in Hollywood. (laughs) And my wife, Carol, is going to be there with amazing paintings. Probably they'll be 16 stories tall. It will take angels to move them. You know, and around her paintings will be thousands of exquisite flowers from her gardens. Will you be in the great city of the king? What will you bring to offer to him? Clearly in the new world where Jesus is king, there is going to be unchained, joyful work. I believe that for those who love Jesus, this world is a preparation for the next. In this world, we are being trained. We are being prepared for our eternal vocations. The work that we were always meant to do that will bring us joy forever. What can you take to heaven from this world? Nothing. If you think that, you're wrong. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9 says this, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, 
Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So the things that we can build here that will endure forever. What are those things? It's work that's not done just to advance ourselves, but is built on the foundation of Jesus and his work on the cross. It's done to advance his kingdom in this world, and it's not hard to do. Remember he said that even a cup of cold water given to one of his little ones in his name would not be without its reward. Our whole lives should be dedicated to doing and creating things that we give to the king right now. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, doing all includes, surprisingly, everything. It includes writing scripts. It includes acting, painting, selling real estate. You name it. If it's clear that we can't do something for the glory of God, we should not do it. That is the test, isn't it? We should examine ourselves. There are things that we may think we're doing for the glory of God, but the truth is it's for our own glory. So what we do here, how we live here, has a direct influence on what we will do and how we will live in Jesus' kingdom forever. Does that sound crazy? The idea wasn't crazy to Jesus. Turn to Matthew 25, verse 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. Jesus is speaking. This is so familiar. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. He called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you would be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and coming at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Obviously, Jesus is using a form of money called a talent to stand for many gifts 
of various kinds entrusted to his servants. In this life, we're responsible for those gifts, not for our own glory and benefit, but for the ultimate glory and benefit of the king. The men in the parable had, a, had their master deeply in mind as they put his gifts to use, building on what he had loaned to them. All of that is a, one, except one of them. It's obvious from that man's actions that he didn't like or even trust his master at all. He thought only of himself and protecting his interests. And this doomed him. For the others, their faithfulness was rewarded. There are other translations that talk about them being made rulers over cities. From my reading of the Bible, I don't think that's figurative language. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I think Jesus was being quite literal when he said that his followers would rule. There are cities in the kingdom that's coming. Some are great and some are small. Those who are faithful to Jesus now are going to rule over the cities and the culture of the new earth. Will Hollywood and Los Angeles exist in the new earth? Well, I don't know for sure, of course, but I believe they will. Along with many of the other great cities and cultures that have existed throughout time, there are people in heaven who lived in many of those cities through time. Now, not all cities probably that have ever been on earth will be reestablished, but I think many of them will be. Turn to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. Beginning with verse 22, John says about the new Jerusalem, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all by, at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no, by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So the nations are to be healed. Certainly that includes their cities. If these nations were brand new, they wouldn't need to be healed, would they? But they do. They are the resurrected, redeemed nations of the past, populated only with the billions of Jesus' followers, those who have been saved by his blood. Someday, I believe this very much, there are going to be very different rulers in Hollywood and in Los Angeles than those who are in power today. Those who are faithful to Jesus here and now will rule with him then. Perhaps you'll be one of them. The New Testament has another way of describing the rewards that are to come for faithfulness. The word is inheritance. The prophet Daniel was told that he was going to die and then someday rise and receive his inheritance. I've thought about this, wonder where that might be. Perhaps the place where he suffered so much. A new and resurrected and redeemed Babylon. That's hard to imagine, but not impossible with God. 
My father died when I was 30, having spent his career as a Bible teacher. He was never a wealthy man. As far as wealth in this world is concerned, I inherited almost nothing from my parents. But my father left me a wonderful inheritance of a different kind. I have his good name. I have all the things he taught me about the Bible and how to study it. Most of all, he left the knowledge of his love for Jesus and the desire to serve him. He was a brilliant man and a humble man who didn't care if his name was known. Because of his obedience on the cross, Jesus has inherited all of creation. Everything is his. It's his right now. And he wants to share that amazing inheritance with us someday. You know, one of the first things that he inherited at his resurrection was a transformed human body. Right now, he has a resurrection body. As we talked about last month, there are wonderful new bodies waiting for us in heaven. But they're interim bodies. They're not our resurrection bodies. Our physical bodies are very important to God. If he didn't care about them, he wouldn't need to resurrect them at all, would he? All he'd have to do is just give us new ones. It's clear from the Gospels in the book of Acts that when Jesus was resurrected, it was in his physical body. In that body, he carried the wounds of his crucifixion. God knows the location of every molecule of every person who has ever lived. And someday they're all coming back together. You know, Christian burial has always been a statement of faith in the physical resurrection of the body. Now, Satan hates the fact of resurrection. So he has implanted in many pagan religions the idea that the physical body is evil and must be destroyed so that the soul can be set free. This was the original purpose for cremation, to free the soul. In our culture, that purpose has changed. But Christian burial remains a symbol of hope. The scripture says that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When a farmer goes out and examines the first fruits of a crop, he knows what the whole harvest is going to be like, doesn't he? And so it is with Jesus. At the resurrection, we will be like him. We're going to have transformed bodies like his. You remember the record of the Gospels. After his resurrection, Jesus was entirely recognizable to his disciples when he wanted to be. He could eat. He could drink. People could touch him feel his flesh. He made a significant point of saying that he wasn't a ghost. He had a physical body, yet without physical limitation. He could appear and disappear. He could pass through walls. He could travel in ways that we do not understand. At the resurrection, we will have bodies like that. We will have everything we need to carry out the joyful vocations that God has planned for us forever. Now, we will continue, I believe, to be males and females. Jesus didn't stop being a man after he was resurrected. The New Testament is very clear about that as far as he's concerned, which brings up a personal question that people have often asked. Will there be sex in heaven? Now, that's an interesting question. Jesus said that there would not be marriage for all the pleasure of it, the primary purpose of sex is procreation. And within God's plan, sex and procreation were always to take place within marriage. So if there's no marriage, it is more, most likely, perhaps, that there won't be any procreation. 
and if no procreation, no need of sex. But it's reasonable to believe that God would not take away such a pleasure without replacing it with a pleasure that was far greater. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He said, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolates. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We're in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. You know, we could spend forever talking about heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, and in fact, we will spend forever talking about them. <laughs> As Lewis said, right now we get tiny glimpses. God gives us those glimpses. First, they come in the Bible. But on rare occasions, people are given true visions of heaven to bring back to us. Always those visions must be measured against the Bible. If they disagree with the Bible in any way, no matter how beautiful they may be, we must reject them. But we need to be careful not to reject all visions because we don't want to miss the ones that truly do come from the Lord. Joel 2, 28 and 29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. We're in those days, friends. We have been in those days since Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended and the church was born. A number of years ago, I believe God poured out his spirit on a little boy, just like Samuel when he was a little boy. God called this child, and I think he revealed things to him. If you have not read the book, Heaven is for Real, I do recommend it. It's the story of little Colton Burpo, son of a pastor who was given a unique experience, and I think it was a real experience of heaven. I have to say that the crass commercialization of that little boy's experience has been stomach-churning, but we have to get through that to examine the truth of the vision. It should not be a surprise to us that God would give a vision to a child because as Jesus said, we all have to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is absolutely full of children right now. Colton Burpo was only three years old when he became desperately ill. His appendix burst and he was filled with abscesses and infection. He required several emergency surgeries and truly little Colton went to death's door. It was in the months after the surgery that dribbles of strange and wonderful information began to come out. Not all at once, just a little here and a little there. The first piece came in a discussion with his father. They were at the funeral of a man in the church. Three-year-old Colton was concerned to the point of tears to know whether this man had Jesus in his heart when he died. Because, he said, you can't get into heaven without Jesus in your heart. Strange intensity for a child. As the months passed, Colton blurted out more of what had happened to him. During surgery, he said that he'd left his body and seen his parents in other rooms of the hospital. He had watched as they prayed for him. 
Then he had been taken to heaven. One clue about that came with these words. Dad, did you know that Jesus has a cousin? I can't remember his name, but he was really nice. That brought his father up short. Yes, Jesus does have a cousin, doesn't he? And his name is John the Baptist. Then came, hey, Dad, did you know that Jesus has a rainbow horse? I got to pet him. There are lots of colors in heaven. That's where all the rainbows are. Well, in Revelation, Jesus does have a horse. He rides on him to destroy the Antichrist. In Revelation, during the final battle, that horse is white. But who's to say that in heaven, he isn't covered with rainbows? Colton's parents were amazed at all of this. They tried hard not to press him for information, just to let things come out. But finally, his father asked him whether he'd seen Jesus and what what he looked like. Colton said that Jesus had brown hair and hair on his face. And his eyes were so pretty. He was the only one in heaven wearing purple and he had a crown. Colton said something else. He said that Jesus had markers. Markers? His father couldn't figure out what that meant. He asked what colors the markers were. The boy replied that they were red. Where were they? On his hands and feet. What did Colton do while he was in heaven? He said that his favorite pastime, what he enjoyed doing the most, was what he called homework with other kids. And Jesus was his teacher. He said there are a lot of kids in heaven. One evening the family was sitting around. Colton came up and announced to his parents that he had two sisters. Well, he had only one sister. I mean, his mother thought he was talking about a cousin, but he was insistent. He had two sisters, and here is how he knew. A little girl had come running up to him in heaven and just wouldn't stop hugging him, which was sort of aggravating to a three-year-old boy. Then he announced to his mother, you had a baby die in your tummy, didn't you? Well, that, at that moment, time stopped in that family. They had never told him about the child they had lost. His mother asked, who told you that? He replied, she did. She said she died in your tummy. They lost the baby. They hadn't known it was a girl. Colton said that their little girl in heaven couldn't wait for them to get there. How many children have died in the womb? Colton saw much more. He said that he saw God's throne. It was really, really big because God was the biggest one in heaven. And Jesus' chair was right next to it. In all of his descriptions of heaven, constantly he talked about how much Jesus loves children. He really, really, really loves them. I recommend the book to you. If you're a child of God, you know Jesus really, really, really loves you. No matter what you're going through right now, hang on to him. A new day is coming. Jesus and his kingdom are coming. And if you're one of his, you have a place in it. Watch for him. Work for the night is coming when no one can work. Do the work of the Lord to set the prisoners free, yes, in this city, right now. You know, over the years of this study, the kingdom of Hollywood has stood for the kingdom of this world, a kingdom that is controlled by Satan and his great lords of darkness. But they know their time is short. No matter when Jesus comes, our time in this world is short. We know that. Are you ready to meet him? Like a little child, have you given your heart and life to him and asked him to forgive your sins? 
You asked him to be the Lord of your life. It's such a simple thing to do, but God, my goodness, it cost God so much. The life of his son so that you could do it. You can't get to heaven unless Jesus is in your heart. So the end of this long series of studies, I think is where it should be, before his throne. For those who have been here through much of the past three and a half years, thank you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have made a place for us. And you sent your son into this world to die for our sins. And then he went back and he created that place. And it's a wonderful, incredible place. Lord, we know that if it were possible for us to be able to see ourselves a hundred years from today, not all the worry, not all the difficulty, not all the problems of this life would be important to us at all. We would see the amazing work that you have been doing all along in us. We praise you for that. Help us to be faithful to you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might live lives that are glorifying to Jesus, that we might bring things into your throne room, things that we have done that have borne fruit for your kingdom now. We pray for that in Jesus' name. We thank you that it's possible because he is our Lord and Savior. Amen. My friend, though we may not meet in this world, I want to see you in heaven. Is Jesus in your heart? Have you asked him to come in and forgive your sins? Have you given your life to him? It's so easy a child can do it, but so many adults are too proud and stubborn. Your future depends on it. A simple prayer is all it takes. If I can be of help to you, write to me at colemanluck at gmail.com. These past 31 talks were given between 2010 and 2013 to a group of Christian professionals on a studio lot in Hollywood. I hope they've been of help to you. This marks a major transition in the burning zone. Beginning with the next episode, we start a new phase with a new format. I hope you'll be here then.